Welcome to Out of the Blank. to another episode of out of the blank podcast me with richard richard it's a pleasure to have you on the show can you please tell everyone a little bit about yourself well my name is richard bartholomew <clears throat> boy from texas born in dallas 1956 which means i was seven years old when kennedy was assassinated i was in second grade um and I spent the next 20 years in Dallas. Then I uh, came to Austin to go to University of Texas. This is the really short version. I'll, I won't expand it. Um, and uh, four years there, and then uh, graduated in 1980. Liked it in Austin and hung around with a, after a short stay in Houston. And uh, been here ever since. Well, okay, so if I, because I know you wrote a book about, and you kind of talk a little bit about the deep state, but I want to ask, you mentioned the Kennedy assassination in the beginning when you introduced yourself. Now, did you stick on to the Kennedy assassination? Did you get as fascinated by it as I am, by Joe, by every single person who's a JFK expert that I've talked to? Because there's a lot there. Yeah, well, you should have been there. Man. I wasn't born. I, I I lived through that day. Uh, and seven, you're you're fairly, you know, you're a big kid by seven, and you know kind of what's going on. By eight, by eight years old, you kind of know everything, right? Mm -hmm. But at seven, you almost know everything. You're you think you're smarter than the adults, but you're not. But um, so I, I was aware of what was going on, and and Kennedy to me, I've read um, other guys who were my age at that time, especially John Kellen. Uh, the JFK researcher John Kellen, who wrote a book called uh, Praise for a Future Generation. It's a book about the first generation of researchers um, that he wrote. He was seven at the time, and in his introduction, he talks about uh, his impressions of that weekend. And very similar to mine, I know exactly where I was when I heard the news. And um, then uh, flash memories through that whole weekend. And through the funeral, after that, everything kind of, you know, goes back to normal memory kind of stuff. But that entire weekend, lots of different flash memories. And to this day, if I, if I like bring up YouTube and I watch the funeral, it takes me right back to that living room watching the funeral on the floor. Well, besides that, that, remember, well, besides remembering where exactly you were when JFK was killed, which you probably have a different viewpoint from the people that were maybe in their twenties um, at the time, or maybe in their thirties. Ten older generations looking back and talking about it from that angle. Um, a younger generation. I mean, when did you spark curiosity in searching into JFK? Like you wrote a book about it, and you have a rambler aspect that I want to get to as well. Too. I'm just curious too. There's a lot of dissenting views upon JFK and being a younger generation like myself um looking back into this when i wasn't alive at the time and i was born way way after um it's very very messy to figure out what 
exactly happened because everyone has different viewpoints, like I was mentioning. So I'm just curious, did you investigate even deeper into JFK um, after that assassination? Did something just trigger you and be like, this, this, this doesn't seem right? Um, well, yeah, um, but not at that age. Uh, like everything is in flux. Everything's happening. Uh, in Texas, though, I do remember my my parents and their friends, the adults that I was around. It seemed like everybody just knew LBJ had to be involved somehow. People in Texas knew LBJ. They knew his reputation. They knew, you know, they just knew him. They knew, you know, the major politicians, if you're aware, you're a citizen, you're voting you're aware of the politicians and you're making decisions about it. And he was a big deal in Texas and people heard about him all the time and had opinions about him. And it seemed like everybody I interacted. It was, it was not, nobody, nobody went the other way. Nobody said, oh, poor LBJ, he's got to take over the presidency. Everybody said he's involved somehow. So there's a sense of what's going on. I mean, and um, so, and my mom, I remember this specifically too, later on, uh, within like a few weeks, like by the end of December, this happened. Um, the Secret Service visited Parkland Hospital um, like a week after the assassination. Uh, I could be wrong on my dates, we can check that. but. Uh, it wasn't that long after the assassination, and it was this was reported in the newspaper, and that's how my mom knew about it. The Secret Service visited the Parkland doctors, and uh, after that visit, they all went in line with uh, you know single shooter, and and everybody got that too. My mom always told me from that point on. She said that was weird that they all switched their stories right after the Secret Service visited them. And that there was that fear that, and, and you, she's not, my mom's not the only one who noticed that. That was, I don't know how the, the newspaper phrased it and all that, but you could see the deep politics going on, just like you can today when you, weird, when you read a story and it doesn't add up. And things just keep getting weirder and weirder after that. The first year after the assassination, uh, before the Warren report came out, like the next September, end of September, 64. Uh, if you go back and look at the newspapers, just from that weekend and then on for months, the most amazing things are being reported. You know, conspiracy stuff. Uh, you know, it was on Saturday that there was a report. I've, I was reminded of this recently. I got a copy of it. Um, some, uh, some young man at, um, uh, Maine and Harwood before the before the motorcade reached Houston Street and made the turns at Maine and Harwood a few blocks up a young man starts chasing the motorcade and he's like screaming stop slow down you know he's like dressed it's not because it's not like a guy who's a fan the way it was reported he's like desperate to 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 tell to warn it was a warning so and then the secret service as it was reported in the story 
sugar service guy jumps off. We know the name of the guy that did it. Jumps off the limousine and and ta body tackles him just like wham down on the concrete uh, on the curb up the sidewalk. And then the people who witnessed all this, they're, they're amazed that the guy even got up. But then he disappeared. He's like he got he either got up and walked away or something. But nobody ever saw the kid, the kid again. And some reports, it's he's considered a boy, but uh, he was more like around 18, maybe somewhere around there, young 20s, 18. But um, yeah, there's descriptions of him. People saw this happen. Secret Service guy gets back on the limousine and then they, they continue on. Wait, so how long was this reported after? Um... It was only, it was reported the next day. I can send, I'll send you the article. I've got a copy of it. So if you could take me through the series of events that happened after the JFK assassination, like, was it, especially in the eyes of the media, was there, like, because I know the Harper fragment probably came out a, little, a lot later. I know the Zapruder film was showed on um, Geraldo Rivera's show. Like, what was it? It Was it a couple years later or was it 10 months no, later? No, that was not 1975, 12 years later. 12 years later. So later. what exactly was released? Because from Oliver Stone, I can only tell, like, it was that he went from the assassination to a bunch of the inner workings with the government that happened with that. And then also then it was the Zapruder film. But I don't know, like when the like the evidence when they started when Arlen Specter, when was that designated that where he moved the bullet hole from his back to the back of his neck? I mean, was there a lot of open coverage about this or did it seem like a bunch of people were just consenting with views? Because, I mean, if you're talking about like you thought it was weird that the Secret Service went to Parkland Hospital this is kind of like your moment where everything that leads up to where you're at now is the reason why you view maybe the government in a certain way. I think today is probably the easiest time for anybody like my age that could look into the government and be like, the government's crooked as hell. Well, back then you couldn't do that. There wasn't that ease of access to be able to tell that the government was messed up. And it's like, they haven't gotten better at hiding it. They've just been more open about it, but people tend not to really look into the details on some aspects. Yeah, it was it was messed up. Uh, it was as messed up as we know it is, is today. Uh, not everybody went there though. Uh, people knew though, but it was more a smaller segment of society that that knew, even close to the politics. So things had happened that you know. Look at the movies that had come out in recent years by the time of the assassination. You've got Seven Days in May, which is about an army coup in the White House. And JFK actually wanted that movie made. If you haven't seen Seven Days in May, you got to watch that because JFK gave them permission to film in the White House because he, he had read the book and he wanted that movie made because he saw the realities of it. Of course, he didn't, he didn't talk about this stuff uh, because you just didn't back then. Uh, but you've got Manchurian Candidate, you've got Dr. Strangelove. Um, going back into the late 50s, you've got the movie Suddenly with Frank Sinatra, which is about an assassination attempt uh, in a small town of a president. Um, so it's it's floating out there. It's out there. You know, it's, uh, you know, people who, who lived through World War II knew a lot of bad stuff. You know, they just kind of segmented into the war years. Um, but there was a big deal after Pearl Harbor. Um, the commanders on the ground there, they were put on trial and they were 
if not court-martialed, severely punished. And they carried that reputation the rest of their lives. We now know that uh, it wasn't their fault. They were scapegoats. So, and this, this was all reported, you know, the trial, what happened to them, all this. If you, if you were really paying attention uh, to stuff like that, very few were doing this kind of detailed paying attention, but there were people doing it. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be uh, a co-author with one of them. One of the major essays in my book was with a man named Walter Graff, who was 40 years older than me. I met him in uh, the early 90s. And uh, by the late 90s, we're working on this essay together. Um, by the time the Kennedy assassination happened, he was an expert on the Lincoln assassination. So you had people who were paying that close attention. During World War II, though, he was, uh, he was in the army and he was an expert on small arms. And uh, that's the basis of the essay that we wrote, his expertise on the murder weapon, on the, on the alleged rifle, Oswald's rifle. Um, but he was an expert on the Lincoln assassination. Um, but people who were paying that close attention, very few people, they knew that in 1938, three years before Pearl Harbor, the Navy, the US Navy held war games in the, for the purpose of showing off the new technology of aircraft carriers. And guess where they held these war games? They invite dignitaries from all over the world to, to you know, show off this new technology, aircraft carriers, you know, how to, how to send sorties off of aircraft carriers and bomb things. Guess where they held it? They held a mock attack on Pearl Harbor. Guess who they invited? Um, the admiral who led the invasion of Pearl Harbor three years later. Well, that's kind of like the whole 9-11 scenario where people we train the people that hijacked the planes to go into these and doing flight simulations. Like if you bring up, uh, what is it, Operation Vigilant Guardian, or you bring up any of these scenarios or simulations that were running the time um, before 9-11 happened, I think there was Operation Vigilant Guardian was programmed the same day as 9-11 to happen, which was about an aircraft carrier going into one of the trade towers. Now this gets people go like, this is conspiracy, you're crazy. No, it's real. And the thing about a simulation is, is that you have to set that up in advance. So the way that I was explained to it by a skeptic was that, Oh, they probably get multiple threats. Is this going to happen on a daily basis? So they were probably already aware of something like this. And they were they they had been getting warnings about it for a while, which I'll give you leniency. I read the 9-11 commission report. I've read the whole entire 800 and whatever pages that it is. It, there's a lot of stuff in there where it's like, you know, it's foresight. It's hindsight. Try not to judge too much because this is what we know now looking back at a time back then. But there's still a lot of unexplained stuff. And this is why like the safest bet to me is hitting the JFK topic because it's 9-11 to me is it's not really too recent, but for a lot of people it is. But here's the issue is that if you take all these events, all these types of situations that were placed in, the military has been known to do what they would call covert action things. And, all, and I think one of them just got uh, – it was like the 50th year anniversary of the Cuba Project, Operation Pluto. Like – that's a real thing where JFK basically inherited this mess that was going on with Cuba at the time where there was bunches of plans, assassinations, but also leads into the Bay of Pigs where a thousand something, 500 people were killed. And it was just a ploy to really invade 
Cuba. It was a thing. And in anything, it made us look bad and made Cuba actually be like, yeah, we beat the Americans. And it gave them a whole boost of morale. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's now coming out now and has been coming out in the last couple of years talking about this. But it's so people are so disconnected. There's generations that wanted to know the answers to this, that just, they're not here anymore. They're gone. And now you have younger generations that don't know a lot about this. Like myself, I don't know a whole lot about Bay of Pigs. I don't know a whole lot about all this stuff. I'm now learning about it. And I'm realizing it's this, it's, it's more normal to me, I guess. Like when you say the word deep state, or we say the word deep state, it's not crazy. Um, even though people would listen and tune out, but I guess this loony thing. It's like, well, Take someone like yourself who's been there when Kennedy was assassinated and then watched every single event kind of unfold publicly and then behind closed doors as well, too. And you can kind of draw a line to everything and realize that, no, there's just a there's a powers, a hidden agenda in a lot of this type of stuff. Yeah. Um, the next time somebody you, you tell somebody something that you know to be real, but it's just, you know, overwhelming for them to take it. And when they call it conspiratorial thinking or a conspiracy theory or, con or a conspiracy in a way that they imply that it's not real, you correct them. You tell them conspiracies are a real thing. They happen every day. They're tried in court every day. The word conspiracy refers to a real thing. It doesn't re refer to a non-real thing. A non-real thing is called a fantasy. So you're referring to a conspiracy, a real thing, not a fantasy. If they're saying it wasn't a conspiracy, they're the ones engaging in fantasy. I wrote a whole essay about that called The Real Conspiracy Nuts that's in the Garrison Magazine, issue five. Um, well, take MK Ultra. That wasn't. That's still not accepted today. You bring up MK Ultra, you bring up brainwashing, you bring up mind control. You can look at the official documents in the CIA talking about it. That's in their recorded files of them on released documents. They are redacted, but they are released files talking all about this. People have done projects like myself in college about it, but people still go, "I'm not into the conspiracy stuff." That's like that's not that's not what that is. That's real, and that's a, a form of brainwashing and mind control. Do I know how deep it goes? No, but when I say like the government drugging people, people go, that's not real. It's like Operation Midnight Climax. That's a thing. That's a real thing. The government used LSD and drug people just randomly, random civilians. And do I know what efforts it was for? Some people say it was an anti-hippie movement where there was a bunch of hippies that were protesting the Vietnam War and they thought, well, these guys are already associated with drugs and love and all this let's drug up a bunch of people have them go crazy and then people hate hippies that's a real thing that happened and people will just say no that's not and true you know what? it's a conspiracy <laughs> now you can you can refuse to believe in conspiracies but you can refuse to believe in that the earth is round too you know you have that right but you're engaging in a fantasy when you do that and you should call them on that uh, i've We've all had friends, when we get into this, and you start trying to talk even to your friends about conspiracies. And the, the JFK assassination became taboo almost right away. I mean, it was a big deal in 66 when Rush to Judgment came out, Six Seconds in Dallas, all those, those first big time exposés after everybody had had time, a couple of years to read the Warren Commission documents, all 26 volumes. Uh, Sylvia Mars book, Accessories After the Fact. I mean, it was all coming uh, unglued. Uh, and that's when the first uh, Warren commissioners 
started turning around and saying privately and semi-publicly uh, that, uh, you know, I had trouble with it, you know, from day one. They were lying to us. They're trying to save their reputations at that point. They know history is going to find the truth here. They know the truth is eventually going to come out. They don't want to look like idiots. That goes all the way up to LBJ. You can go on a YouTube, uh, and I mentioned, I referred to this, all this stuff in that essay, The Real Conspiracy Nuts. And uh, you can find the video of LBJ talking about how, oh, I never believed the Warren Commission. He's the guy who commissioned it. He picked the commissioners. You know, I always thought that maybe Cuba did it or something like that. And, and he's going on and on about this. But the bottom line is he didn't believe the Warren Report conclusion. So he's, and he's very savvy. LBJ is very savvy. He knows history is going to see him as a fool. If he doesn't put out there this hint that he really knows what's happening, he knew what was going on. Eventually, we had every single Warren commissioner, except one. Every single one of them backtracked on it. Gerald Ford did it privately. Um, it's either Joe or um, or uh, Aguilar told you about um, when he had a meeting with the French president, just started to stay. Oh, that was Joe. Yeah. And in like 76, no, no, like 77, 78. Um, and he, he tells him right out, you know, we knew it was a conspiracy. Uh, we just, you know, didn't find out who did it. Uh, of course, that echoes, that was echoed with the House Select Committee uh, report that came out in 79. And uh, they said probable conspiracy. And you know what they did? They said, okay, we think there's probably a conspiracy here. We're gonna refer everything we found for the last several years investigating this, we're gonna refer it to the Justice Department. We strongly recommend the Justice Department pick this up and continue. Nothing, crickets, ever since. So to this day, there is an order out there from Congress to the Justice Department to get to the bottom of this, take their evidence, their leads, do it, get to the bottom of it, find this conspiracy. Crickets to this day. So the conspiracy is in effect right now. You know, people have been brainwashed to think that this was ancient history, that, uh, you know, it happened. It ended, it's over with, people are just debating it, making movies about it, it's entertainment, it's a parlor game. No, it's an active conspiracy right now. It's affecting our lives right now. Well, let me just ask the question. Let me take you from age seven to where you're at now, all the events that have happened and all like the progress or all the work that you've done that culminates into your book that you wrote as well too. What are some things that I haven't heard of or things that maybe you would think that the general audience just maybe hasn't looked into or things that are suspicious that should be raised up to question that you could just line out for me and I can maybe learn and ask some questions upon because I know I can give you anything that's happening right now and anything that's happened in the past couple of years that I can tell you that this is stuff you need to question, but it hasn't. I think the pandemic is the best highlighter of that in general, the amount of back padding, but people will blame it. Oh, that's big business. Here's a real clear cut example everybody runs into every single day. When you go to follow somebody on Instagram, and it might be a controversial figure, such as people I've had on my show, like Peter McCullough or something, they say, are you sure you want to follow this person? 
Now, go to a regular person and hit follow. It'll follow. The reason why it does that, it's a bit of a shadow ban, I would say. But in no reason, they're, 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 they're questioning your judgment. Are you sure this person has been this? This person has been this. You're now skewing people's thoughts. And that's brainwashing. That's a simple form of brainwashing. And people don't realize that. But advertising is brainwashing. There's reasons why you get cravings for Coke. There's reasons why you get craving for Pepsis. There are methods that have been in place for a very, very long time. And they've gotten so dumbed down to the point where it's in all of our faces and we don't realize it. And it's not what I would call people that talk like this or people that go like this. I wouldn't call them conspiracies. I call them people that are starting to kind of notice that the world is set up in a systematic way, a very systematic way. And the people that move those chess pieces are people that are in high positions of power. But when you mention that people go, oh, this must be one of those, you know, shadow shows, the show that always talks about like Illuminati. It's like, well, Illuminati is a fun word, but a better word for it is deep politics or deep state or something where you realize that people who are running the system that you live in, you might live in your home, but when we look at China and we go, oh, thank God we don't live over there. No, we do. We we do in a sense. We might not be so restricted as they are openly. But in some cases, if you go against a certain form of judgment, if you go against a certain form of this, to think that you can't just be taken out. I mean, I could be taken out. I don't know. Nobody would miss me probably. So you get to this point of like, this is like some things you have to worry about is that slider scale. I know this from William Colby. The man was 76 years old after he exposed the dark route the CIA was going to. Now, I will preface this with I did talk to his friend, um, John Ranley, who wrote books about the CIA. He didn't want to go into his death a whole lot, but he did admit that it was something suspicious. Jeff Jefferson Morley also admitted that he takes it more seriously now. Um, but the guy was found, what's four or five days later, floated to an island after he went in the middle of the night kayaking. And he had just called his wife and had a talk with her while he was eating dinner. And then he works in the CIA for what, 12 years and he leaves his doors unlocked. That's just that there's stuff you can question, but I get it. If a person wants to say, no, that doesn't make sense. You don't have to question those things. Perfect. All right. Next time I leave the house, I'll leave my door unlocked. Yeah, it was questioned at the time. Um, look at the JFK witnesses that died, you know, Mysteriously, I, I know a couple of them. I don't know them all, though. Oh, there's a bunch. There's a ton, way more than there should be. They've done all the uh, statistics on it. Uh, when the statistics first came out at the time of uh, Rush to Judgment, Mark Lane was talking about it. It's in the film Executive Action um, at the end. Um, the CIA like comes back and says, you know, when they get their own stat statisticians and they say, oh, you know, they got their math wrong. Um, but the math has been redone in recent years by mathematicians, by JFK researcher mathematicians, too. And it's been nailed. You know, way more people, uh, you know, uh, Jim Mars in, in Crossfire had raised that issue again. He had a chapter in there on the, on the mysterious deaths. Um, Richard Belzer, the guy from uh, Law and Order, he wrote an entire book about the suspicious deaths of the witnesses. Uh, so it's it's back and it's confirmed way more people died is, you know, the initial list was like 53 or something like that. Uh, but the list, I mean, through the 70s, you know, around the time of the House Select Committee, people were like dying right and left. George DeMorenshield, suspicious suicide. 
uh, right before, like they were they were practically knocking on the guy's door to come testify, and then suicide shotgun blast to the head. George and George Marshall was the guy who was Oswald's handler uh, before he got turned over to Ruth Payne, Ruth and Michael Payne. How much do you know about the Paynes? You know, uh, I, I recently watched the new documentary, The Assassination of Mrs. Payne. I learned a lot of new stuff, but I I knew a lot that most people did not know. Um, in, in my book, um, and it was a manuscript that was that I'd self-published at the time in 1993, 94. Um, What's the name of the book? Um, the Deep State in the Heart of Texas. Okay. It's my book. And I knew so, it. I just wanted you to say it. So it's part of the Rambler story because, you know, all right. Let me go back and backtrack one uh, one more thing. Uh, I'm going to teach you a new a, a new word, apparently new word, if you've never heard the word conspiration. Uh, like I, I hear you talk about conspiracy and people telling you, oh, you're you're talking about conspiracy. All right. I already straightened it out on the fact that conspiracies are a real thing. Things that aren't real are a fantasy. You've got to keep those words straight. Don't let people call a non-real thing a conspiracy. Well, the way the public views the word conspiracy is like pyramids with Moloch statues and stuff. They got the it that, wrong. Yeah, we need the, to take back. We need to take back that word. It's a perfectly legit legal word that's used every day in courts. Conspiration is the way the world is. You know, everything from surprise birthday parties to uh, you know trying to. Uh, you know, it, it, you know, bargain with somebody, or uh, you know, any kind of setup, any kind of like situation that doesn't involve a crime. You know, people do that all the time. People like it's the it's human nature to you know plan something secretly with somebody else and make it happen. You know, talk about you know office politics. You know that. If it doesn't involve a crime, it's a conspiration. And the world is based on conspiration. That's the way we do things. That's the way everybody acts and behaves. It's human nature. When it becomes a crime, that's the legal term conspiracy. If you plan a crime with one other person, you are a conspirator. And you you have engaged in a conspiracy. If there's like 10 of you, you go rob a bank. Everybody gets away, except they catch the driver. All he did was drive the car. He gets nailed. He is, in in legal terms, you catch one person involved in the slightest way, they are as guilty, you know, if it's a murder conspiracy, and usually getaway car driver, um, you're as guilty as the ones who pulled the trigger. Well, it's called conspiracy to commit violence. Right. Conspiracy, this or that, you know, tons of legal terms, but conspiracy is where you secretly planned a crime with someone else. Uh, everything else, surprise birthday parties, that's a conspiration. That's the way people are. But as soon as it involves a crime, it becomes a conspiracy. It's a real thing. Don't let people use that word for something that's not real. Correct them. Say, what you're referring to is a fantasy. So anybody who says Oswald acted alone, they're engaging in a fantasy. And, you know, they may choose not to engage with conspiracy or think about conspiracy. I choose not to engage with fantasies. You know, 
I don't want to talk to you about Oswald Acton Uh I have a little uh, lesson, uh, one minute lesson. Uh, I have two Carcano bullets, 6.5 millimeter. One, never been shot, pristine. The other one is fired at a, tar at a target. It's flat. And, yeah, you can see the, the head is flat. Just at a target, flattened head. One never fired. And, and I asked, and I show him, and I said, and I say, guess which one the Warren Commission said caused uh, seven wounds and two men, including shattering the fifth rib and uh, a very dense wrist bone and ending up in the thigh of John Connolly. Guess which one? The one that was fired at a target with a flat head? Which one is closest to the one they said did all that damage? And, you know, they get the direction I'm going at that point. They say, what, the, the one that doesn't look like it's been fired? Exactly. You know, you talk about the complexities of the single bullet theory of Arlen Spectre. I was, let me backtrack and say it was around April that he came up with that. Um, but it's nonsense. And, uh, you know, I will tell them that it's nonsense. I will prove to them that simply with my little one minute lesson that it's nonsense. And I said, the whole thing is that simple because you got the Warren Commission relied on three bullets. Um, first one misses, second one hits Kennedy and Connolly, third one hits JFK in the head, kills him. Um, and, but, uh, so you only have three bullets and you have to make that second bullet do damage in both men. And uh, that's the single bullet theory and it's just nonsense, it's a fantasy. Call it the single bullet fantasy. That's what I said in my, in my essay, the real conspiracy nuts. Um, it's the single bullet fantasy, not the single bullet theory. Calling it a theory gave it way too much credibility from the beginning. And they called it that for, for on purpose. Arlen Specter knew what he was doing. These are lawyers. They practice legal language. The whole Warren report is, is very, very carefully selected ling, legal language for the purpose of making you think a certain way. And lawyers do this all the time. They pick their words very carefully. When he called it the single bullet theory, he knew what he was doing because it gave it credibility. He knew it didn't have. Well, Inspector knows that there were more than, more bullets than that, but they were, you know, whoever planted the evidence on the sixth floor, you know, did maybe that was the plan, three shell casings, one bullet left in the, in the gun. I talk all about that in my, in my essay, the gun that didn't smoke, which is in my book. The one that I co-authored, Walter Graff, the small arms expert. And um, so, so does your book walk walk through all this? Yes, uh, very deeply into the ballistics, things about the ballistics that you haven't heard anywhere else. And um, amazingly, it's still not talked about. There's things in my book that are not talked about. Could you um, give me an example? Well, you mentioned uh, you had never heard of the Rambler. Yeah. So uh, let's just do that real quickly. Uh, there was a getaway car. There were like a handful of witnesses saw Oswald run down the grass in front of the school depository on Elm Street. A car pulls up on Elm Street to the curb, lets out a loud whistle, driver lets out a loud whistle, 
Oswald runs down, gets in the car, and drives off west down Elm Street towards in the correct direction to where you would end up in uh, South Oak Cliff, where Oswald's rooming house was, and where the whole Tippett situation happened after that. So one of the guys that saw this was a deputy sheriff, a guy named Roger Craig, Roger Dean Craig. You go on YouTube and you can find Roger Craig telling the whole story about what he witnessed. Um, when he heard later in the day that they had a man in custody, uh, this deputy sheriff, who's a, an award-winning lawman, he had won awards for excellence in law enforcement as a deputy sheriff, uh, thoroughly trained identification, everything. Um, he heard they had a man in custody. He tells uh, Captain Fritz, uh, want me to come up and see if I can ID him? Come on up. He goes up. He says, yeah, that's the guy I saw get into the rail. He's, and he said it's a, it was a light-colored Rambler station wagon. Um, and if you look, I don't know uh, if you have the DVD, the director's cut of Oliver Stone's JFK. But if you look at the bonus scenes, the outtakes, he shows that happen. And I'm amazed that in 1991, the guy who was doing the research on the cars was like, you know, superb. I tried to call the set because uh, I was really learning all this at the time. I was researching it heavily. And I was researching a 1959 Rambler station wagon. And I called up and I actually got a hold of the guy. They connected me with the guy who was doing the auto research for the film uh, while it was being filmed in Dallas. And uh, I went, I asked him, uh, you know, what what year are you are you using for the Rambler? And uh, I don't know if you know they have non-disclosure agreements for films like this. So mm -hmm. he said he didn't know. He said he, he couldn't help me. Um, so it remained a mystery. But when I finally got that um, that those bonuses on that uh, director's cut DVD and saw that scene, guess what? They used that exact car, 1959 Rambler station wagon. How did they know that? How could? They, how did they possibly, you know? I'm I'm so confused because wait, so the Rambler was a getaway vehicle, but who was who were they trying to set him up? Like he had a car to get away, and they loaded up the car with a bunch of stuff that would be incriminating to him plotting an attempt to kill the president or something. Because like, where does the bus ride fit in? Because I know Gary Hill, when he was on here, he explained to me that Oswald went to this apartment. Um, his maid was in there watching TV. Just saw the president was killed. Um, he had rolled up $1 bills and everything, or he had rolled up bills in his dresser drawer, but he talked about a police car that pulled out in front of Oswald's apartment or whatever, and honked a horn and then drove off. And I brought up the question, was that Tippett? And he goes, no, the Tippett squad car was a different number. So then I go, okay, so then he went down and then he hailed for a bus and then there was a bus situation. No, no, you got it. Okay. Yeah, you got it back. You got it backwards. Um, so he uh, he's still in in uh, downtown Dallas. You know, he walks. Can, can you take me from the, the 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 depository building? Like he was drinking a coke on the second floor, and they, everyone's like, "Why did they let him go?" Can you just take me from there and walk me through? Because that's where I'm a little bit confused. Okay, so I walked you through. Uh, I, I walked you through something that really happened. 
guy looks like Oswald gets into a Rambler stationway and heads west. Okay. Um, the whole Whaley's taxi cab, uh, the bus, you know, he walks north, gets on the bus, goes a little ways, gets off, uh, tries to get a cab. Get this. Uh, as the story goes, he, he lets a lady ahead of him take the cab. She's like already there. He says, oh, no problem. Go ahead and take the cab. You know, is this a desperate assassin trying to escape, mm. you know, the crime scene? He lets a lady take the cab ahead of him. You know, even the, the seemingly fantasy stories they come up with, you know, it's like the Zapruder film, you know. And, and let me let me go on record here. Everybody seemingly, I don't think I've seen all of your JP Researcher uh, podcasts yet. But the ones that I have seen, even the panel discussion, everybody said, I'm agnostic on the Zapruder film. Joe's agnostic on the Zapruder film. Everybody said they're agnostic on the Zapruder film. Not me. It's, uh, it's, it was uh, altered. It's a, it's a fake film. I had Jacob Hornberger explain how they altered the film. But the one thing I kept getting conflated was if there's another uh, video or a camera angle from the motorcade, not of that exact assassination moment that the Pruder film was taken, but another one that's in Oliver's film where JFK is waving and he like his face looks stunned like he just saw someone like like something suspicious that just took all the emotion out of his face. And I go, if that was something before the assassination attempt, even though there were two prior assassination attempts that we do know about, you have to think that it's going to happen again. So that was his face. Like, what was that? Like su suspecting something. And now I hear what Joe told you about that, about, you know, you got to be careful. I've done a lot of the, you know, I knew Jack White. I went to a lot of his presentations. Jack White was like the photo researcher guy. You'll find a lot of his work published in the books. Um, so I've, I've dealt closely with the photo research. And I agree with Joe that you, you cannot look at something like that and, and say, this is what I think he was thinking. Uh, sure, you can, to a certain extent, you can, study micro expressions, blink rates, things that tell whether someone is lying or not. But to, you know, first of all, you're focusing on a few seconds of film. Uh, a few seconds of film where he immediately was smiling and then his face dropped like someone told him his parents just died. But you know, uh, he could have been on his way to a speech and realized that he forgot his copy. You know, it could have been a lot of things. It could have been a lot of innocent things. So you're, you're you're burdening it with a lot of things that, you know, and then then you convince yourself if you tell yourself that enough times, and you may be right, but you don't know, I tell you that's uh, enough times. And if you're wrong, you start believing it and and it becomes a straw man argument. Somebody's just waiting to, to knock you down on it. So got to be careful, especially with photos. Uh, don't read too much, especially, I mean, I see people. They look at the photos of Dealey Plaza and, you know, like, a, you know, an inch of a second of a single photograph and they're and they're and they focus on it and they think time has stood still. They think that this photo is lasting forever and they start talking about what this guy's thinking and what that guy is seeing and it's ridiculous. It was a such a tiny fraction of a second. It could be anything. Well, so you got to be 
what about the Zapruder film do you think was uh, uh, clearly altered? I know there's frame 313, but the one thing that always gets me stuck is like there was a glare from the windshield, the front windshield. And then you find out the windshield was the whole thing was the whole motorcade vehicle was repaired in general. Um, and then you get to that Ford. They we have an evidence now pictures of a bullet or a hole through the windshield. And that obviously clearly states a front shot. And in the Zapruder film, anybody that sticks by it or anybody, I mean, it's either way, even if you say it's altered, it still shows Kennedy getting hit in the head. So I'm just besides editing out that windshield. I agree with the agnostics on that point. And that's why I don't hassle them about this. Um, yeah, uh, the, the existing film, the altered film, you know, they couldn't they couldn't take out all everything. But we were never supposed to see that film. That film was supposed to be buried away, you know, for good. Uh, By time it was magazine. Leaked. We, we got it. Well, we got it first because Jim Garrison subpoenaed it and got it and showed it in court. Uh, bootleg copies, really bad bootleg copies, were distributed all through the research community in the late 60s and early 70s from that. Um, but Robert Groden, you know, got a hold, you know, through his connections and just through sheer luck in some cases, he got a hold of a really good copy of it. And then he very surreptitiously, conspirationally uh, made good uh, copies of it. And that's what they showed on Geraldo Rivera in 1975, Robert Groden's version of it. it shocked everybody that saw it. I, you know, I was traveling at the time. I was in a in a college band wind ensemble we were on a concert tour and we had stopped in ponca city oklahoma and we were staying with uh, families were hosting us and uh, groups of us were staying at different houses and we asked them if we could this was you know everybody knew this was coming up that night asked them if we could stay up and watch it and they said oh for sure we're we're going to stay up and watch it we heard about it so I'm sitting there in somebody else's house in Ponca City, Oklahoma, when I first saw the Zapruder film, and it shocked everybody. But that's why we were never supposed to see it. It was, it, it took 12 years for that to happen, and that's because it was leaked by Robert Groden. Only because of a leak did we see it. Um, but now imagine this: if the existing fake film is that bad. Imagine what was in the real one. Now, you've got multiple bullets. You don't have just three bullets. You've got multiple bullets flying from multiple directions. Connolly certainly was hit by a different shooter than JFK was. Now, the thing that the agnostics don't like to deal with here is because, I mean, and the smart ones know that you know, it's a little iffy that you can use the Zapruder film as a time clock of the assassination. Um, is it, yeah, so uh, Josiah Thompson in his new book, Last Second in Dallas, uh, there's a documentary out with that, uh, and I watched it. Um, they go straight to using it as a time clock, and they take the, the, the famous... Um, a dictabelt tape of the sounds of the shots and then they put them together and yeah you can make that look good and they do make it look good 
I saw it long before they did it in this new documentary, um, back in 76 when the House Select Committee was dealing with it. And that was the whole thing about the Dictabelt sound of the shots. If you could get the sound of the shots, and they, yeah, they did go to Dealey Plaza and they set up, you know, the shots and so that they could record the echoes from different positions and they got all that to match. And so, it, you know, but it could still be sophistry. A, a clever, a clever argument can still be a wrong argument. And, but to just take the recording and to put it next to the Zapruder, first of all, yeah. To me, it's obvious that that's nonsense because you're not seeing all the shots. Uh, I did it. There's an essay in my book called um, JFK Red Frame White Light. And it's about, it's a short essay, three pages. And in three pages, I was able to, uh, and I was following up on some uh, research that Millicent Craner, the great researcher Millicent Craner, had done. She now works for. Uh, Russell Baker at whowhatwhy.com. Um, but I always credit her uh, with, you know, researching what witnesses saw and then that didn't make it into the film that we know. Uh, and there's missing motions and you can read testimony. You can find all these things that people know they saw and talked about it, but it's not in the film. And I did that. I followed up on her work and found some more stuff. Zapruder himself, when he was interviewed by the Warren Commission, was trying to talk about it. He, they were showing him stills of his own film for the purpose of him saying, you know, verifying that that's his film. But uh, they don't, of course, they're not showing him the film. Uh, they're just showing him uh, like 13 stills, one of which is frame 313. But he's, he's going through this. You can read his testimony. He's going through this stack of stuff and he's going, well, I don't see I, 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 my most vivid memory of seeing that. And he says, you know, I'm the guy that saw it best when it really happened. I was the guy looking up through a telephoto lens and saw it through that. Um, and he says, I, I strongly remember JFK grabbing his chest like this as if to say, oh, they got me. Well, that's not in the film. Well, it turns out that the perfect place for that to be in the film is the place where there's this rear jump, frame, frame 227. And you've got the FBI film analysts talking about the weird jump. And they're just trying to rationalize it away. When the Warren Commission talks to them, they have them expound on it. What do you mean by this, this jump in the film? This, you know. And Shaney Felt, the FBI film analyst, um, he, he, Gives two, if you read his testimony, he gives two different versions. This happens all over, by the way, in the testimony. When you start reading the testimony, in Jack Ruby's testimony, there's two different versions of what happened. It's as if when they're off the record, they say, all right, we're going to let you tell this any way you want to. Tell it the way you think it happened. But we also want you to tell it this way. So that's, that's not an uncommon thing that happens in these situations. But you can see it happening all through the testimony of the Warren Commission. Well, who was it, Jim? It happens with well, Jim, it Jim happens with Shaneyfeld talking about this jump in the film, and he talks about Connolly's movements, and uh, he he explains it both ways. You know what what the film shows now, and what apparently some other film showed. And 
So, and, and, and then I analyzed what John Connolly said about what happened when he was shot. And guess what? It matches the same moment. And it's nothing like the motions he's doing. If you look at his earliest comments, they interviewed him from the hospital bed, like a week after the assassination. And he's talking about his movements. Later, he would fudge all that. But you look at the very first time he talked about it, he doesn't know that he has to match a cover story. He's talking about how he, uh, he turned this way. He heard the shot. He turned this way. He straightened back up and kept turning all the way around and looked straight back at JFK. He's looking straight at him behind him in the back seat. And that's when I was shot, he said. But what does that tell you? He turns all the way around. The front of the car is that way. And he's looking straight back. He's like straining to look at JFK straight in the face. And he said, that's when I was shot. Where was Connolly shot? He was hitting the rib. No, I mean, he was hit. Yeah, in the just shoulder. Just to the left of the shoulder blade, of the right shoulder blade. But the magic bullet said it went through his rib. That's where it entered. Well, then it hit the ribs, comes out below the nipple, hits the wrist, ends up in the thigh. Whereas all the, you know, when you look at the film today, you see uh, Conley, pretty much he's just like sitting in his seat, like I am right here. And you see, you see him uh, turn this way and then this way, then fall over this way. You don't see the turn all the way back looking at Jake, like he said he did. And like others, uh, others say that too, like Shaney felt in his testimony. Um, but all we see is like he's holding his hat and then at 227, uh, there's like this weird hat flip. It's like, I call it a fly swat, but it's, it's too fast to be a natural action. It's like, you know, where the current film is arranged to be 18 frames per second. And this hat flip, I mean, you can't do it. If you, if you tried as fast as you possibly could to like, imitate that motion, it would still take a couple frames of film uh, to, to get it on film. I've heard someone say that they tried to slow it down micros of a second to catch to see if they could somehow capture the bullet. I mean, using like a, com a computer to be able to just do it at such a slow speed, it doesn't even look like it's changing just to see if they could see a speck go in there. But that's where I get the windshield reflection from is that they can catch that windshield reflection, that light that gleams off of it. But everyone says that's just a, that's something else. It's not a bullet from the front. But if you're talking about multiple shooters, and a lot of people did say that Kennedy seemed like he was caught in a crossfire. Um, I mean, it's it to me, it's it's really suspicious because I think like with the Zapruder film, especially, it's just I don't I didn't know what the the editing on technology was back then. But then I see a picture of these photo edit labs where one of the people that photographed a lot for the Kennedys talked about this photo lab and you get to see all these people working in what looks like a heroin shop. Like they're, they're all dipping stuff in water and sinks and doing all. And you're just looking at it like, this is really complex. There's a hundred percent possibility that there, the Zapruder film was altered. I mean, we, they have the technology for that. If you want to know the whole story of the technology of that uh, read what Douglas Horn wrote about it. Uh, he got the whole story about how 
you know, it ended up in Rochester, New York, uh, before it went back to D.C. and the CIA made briefing boards about it. Uh, others have told you that story. Um, and you can go on YouTube and you can uh, you can look at uh, Doug, Doug Horn did a video and it's on YouTube. Uh, it tells the whole story of that. But it ended up at um, Kodak's national headquarters was in Rochester, New York. And there was a, a place called Hawkeye Works, the most advanced photography available. You could do anything uh, up to 1963 technology. You know what a deep fake is today? The term deep fake? Yeah, with digital, you can make stuff look totally real. It's like a people are freaked out by it because uh, in digital, you can't always detect. You can't. Well, yeah, you can't. You can if it's a bad deep fake, but it's usually not a bad deep fake. So people are rightly scared of deep fakes. This is a, a 1963 version of a deep fake, um, and I, they couldn't. They now they could. It was pretty darn good for 1963. I mean, you look at the film, and if you're not analyzing it closely, it looks like a perfectly good film. Well, but as soon I... as you get into the details of what film is and what film does, you know, and there are people who are on the other side of this. Robert Groden, absolutely, it's completely real. There's no way it could have been faked the way they, well, you know, we're going to know. We're going to know someday. And, uh, well, there's a fine line with every expert I've ever talked to, the ones that agreed to be on the panel and the ones that disagreed to be on the panel is that they might agree on most things, but they disagree on some things that they would consider very crucial. The Zapruder film is one of those things as well, too. Um, the way that Oswald was set up, some people agree that he obviously was and some people disagree. I think the most I've ever really gotten feedback from was like YouTube comments where people were like, Mr. Aguilar doesn't, he's getting it all wrong. It's like, I don't think so. I think he's probably one of the most respectable people that you could talk to about this. I think a bunch of people are. Now, there's one issue that is going on that just happened recently, which was that they did find Elma, uh, Elmer Lee Todd's um, engraving on that magic bullet. And that's kind of what the small thing was. But if you look at any of the experts who have did the Oliver Stone film or who have talked about the JFK assassination, Vince Palamala, any of these people, they always bring up like other things. They never bring up the initial on the bullet wasn't there. Like that's a last ditch effort. Like that's like, here's everything. Here's the dessert. Here's your cherry on top. Like that little bit. They always hit the major crucial spots where it's like, how does a bullet make all those holes? How does this do this? What about the autopsy? There's issues with this. They bring up every crucial aspect besides that engraving and now they just found that this engraving actually was on there and this is what they go see so if you were wrong about this you could have been wrong about it all nobody even mentioned that first everyone else mentions all the other crap that was going on that the most important real stuff that is proven to be false and they go no 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 I'm going to go to the end thing that you said about the engraving on the bullet it's like okay that does not invalidate their whole argument that's just one thing that was in, I guess, in a low light or whatever. It doesn't even mean anything in the grand scheme of it. Yeah, you can. It adds more weight to the chain of custody. But if you go into the actual, like, the eyewitness encounters, if you go into all this stuff, everyone try. Like, people literally try and draw a line to say that this is conspiracy or this is fake stuff. This is fantasy. And I'm like, are you working for the government? 
Like, I'm sorry. Like I've look, I've talked to every side of this. I've talked to Jim's side. I've talked to Dale Meyer's side. I've talked to, I'm getting, I would like to get Gerald Posner on and talk about as well too. I get that they're all dissenting views, but I'm everything. One thing I've really noticed is the stuff that gets highly publicized or wins an Emmy or gets like on the news is the stuff that agrees with the official narrative. And it really makes me question one thing was the day that Kennedy was shot. All the people that were rushing to the microphone to go let the world know that Kennedy was just killed. Was that the only accurate day that you can depict that real information was given to the public and everything else has been a descent into hell? Because I don't I, – I, eventually the government's on top of it. They're like, we need to go to every news station to make sure if anybody's reporting about this, which they all are going to be reporting about this, they know this is what they need to be saying if they're going to get airtime, if they're going to get these types of things. I feel like that day that he was shot was the only accurate day you got any real information from the media. You were getting some real information, but it wasn't all real information. You know, you got you to gotta realize that they plan this in advance. And they knew the news would be all over it. It's going to be like major world news. And they planted stuff. Uh, even early on in the first hour, in the first minutes and hours, they had, they had things they had things going to their assets, you know, the, their favorite reporters and stuff. You read my article on the ballistics, you'll see uh, the handful of different rifle descriptions uh, that went out just you know in the first hour you know it was like everything but a man like a gorkana uh it was and i give the list of all the different rifles that it was that it was being reported and you can go back and you can look at the live broadcast and you can hear and time when these reports which i did and i and i noted all that in the in the essay and there's i what walter graff Walter Graff discovered that the Mannlicher Carcano, he was like going through an encyclopedia of small arms and he came across the Carcano, which he knew was the murder, the alleged murder weapon. And he, he got this epiphany. He, he was reading through the details of it and he was reminded that the way its clip loading system works is slightly different than similar uh, clip loading systems of. Um, common military rifles, uh, contemporary rifles. And he started thinking, well, wait a minute now. The way they said this rifle was set up, uh, the way it was found, it's set up, if it had the last round in the chamber uh, and the clip was still there, that's like this, that's like the M1 Garand, one of the, the, the most used a rifle in World War II. M1 Grand, it makes that ping noise. This is a guy who knows these weapons. He knew every small arm in the world at the time of World War II. That was his job to know them. And so he started thinking, why did they describe the setup? Say, you know, we know it was a planted rifle, but it was set up to look like an M1 Garin at the finish of firing instead of a Carcano. The Carcano soon as you load the last bullet, the clip pops out fast. And that was his epiphany right there. Guess what? All those descriptions of all those other rifles, it even gets worse than the difference between the M1 Garand. They didn't say it might be an M1 Garand. 
because nobody knew about the clip. Nobody reported the clip. Um, every single description, even after they had seen the rifle being brought out of the Texas School Book Depository, and you can see this footage to this day, Lieutenant Day, the crime scene analyst, is carrying it out and sticking out of the bottom of the trigger guard where the clip should be, you know, when it's fully loaded, sticking out the bottom, bizarrely, is the clip. You can see the clip. But you never see any reports of the clip, any official reports. Later that day, um, there uh, it ends up in a list of things that they didn't find fingerprints on. But you have the footage of them dusting the rifle on the sixth floor, uh, and there's and he turns the rifle towards the camera and you see it from all angles and all this, you see him putting the dust on there for fingerprints. Not only is the clip not in his notes, you don't see the clip on the film. At one point you're looking straight down into the, the chamber where the clip should be if it's in the rifle and you, it's not there. It's certainly not sticking out the bottom, but when he brings it down and he comes out the front of the TSBD and he's walking down the street, and all the news guys are there filming it, you see the clip sticking out the bottom. Well, so it just like bizarrely appears. Guess what? All, even after that, the descriptions of rifles that they're saying, uh, one of them was an Enfield, you know, I can't remember the, the list, but there's like five different kinds of rifles that they're describing on the news. None of them use a clip. After it was known that this, that the murder weapon involved a clip loading system, every description of rifle that they're reporting live on the news, none of them use a clip. Now, why would, why would that happen? Well, I think those, those stories were planted because they didn't want to talk about the clip. There was some confusion about whether the clip should be there or not be there. And, you know, apparently... When you first see the, the, the rifle filmed on the sixth floor, um, you don't see a clip. You don't see it in the notes. You don't see it as, a, as fingerprinted. And then <laughs> with no reporting at all, nothing, nothing about this. That's the, that's the other thing that Walter Graff uh, said. You read the Warren report about the clip and it's not there. You know, this, this is how this weapon is loaded. And there's no mention in the Warren Report at all of the clip. Well, the way that it doesn't make sense is if they were talking about a weapon without a clip, that means he would have to manually put in the bullet and then cock it. And then, and that would take way too much time considering about the aim of how the bullets came in. Or it's uh, an internal magazine. Um, and this is not, the word clip is used for actual clips, um, external magazines that are attached to the rifle. And also for um, a loading, uh, it's, it's really just um, a C-shaped metal thing that holds the cartridges. And with the Carcano, you put it down through the top and then it's held in by levers and springs. And then you're firing them and the spring lever pushes them up as you're loading them and firing them. Next one loads in, next one loads in. Um, when you load the last one in the chamber, the lever releases and it goes flying out the bottom. Now, occasionally it, there are ways it will stick. And I tested, I got my own Carcano 
from a buddy who had one. And I just sat on his back porch and I just ran it through the mechanism over and over different ways that I could make this clip stick there. Couldn't make it stick the way it was seen in the film. Anyway, the whole essay is about that. Um, bottom line there is that they were, they were purposely distracting attention away from clip fed rifles. And the reason was that they had to make sure <laughs> they can make this uh, mistake go away. If that had been discovered, if it had been discovered that there was a, a clip in the rifle that shouldn't be there, um, it would have exposed the conspiracy right there, that the attempt to frame Oswald for the crime would have been exposed. It was, you know, when you, in the military, you come up with a plan and it's, it's a well-known thing that, you know, plans are only good until they're implemented. And then lots of things can go wrong and you have to like, you know, uh, wing it from that point on. Um, and that's just the way plans are. You have to, you have to be ready for, for just about anything. And this was something that really went gone. They, when they, uh, when they planted the rifle, they got confused about whether or not a clip should be there. And the, the rifle that most people familiar with military rifles um, the, the most familiar one to experience uh, military riflemen was the M1 Garin, where once you load the last round, the clip stays in. But you would hear a giant ting when that was when when it needed to be reloaded. When it emptied out its clip, that makes a giant bing. If you want to, if you want to see something else more ridiculous, watch the 1967 CBS News uh, broadcast. Where they're defending the Warren Commission, and they say, "Oh, yeah, we went out and we tested. Uh, we had several um, marksmen with Carcanos, and they're firing at this moving target, and they have them up on a stand, and they show, they film all this, and they said, oh, so we got, we got this many uh, correct hits, and blah blah blah, and it all comes out where they say it. See, so it shows that Oswald could have done it." Well, guess what? Every single shot that they showed that was successful, you see the, the clip flying out of those rifles like mad. Every successful shot that CBS recorded and tested, you can see the clips flying out. Well, if you want to duplicate what Oswald allegedly did, you have to duplicate that clip getting stuck. And guess what? If it gets stuck the way, it was left to the House Select Committee. The War Commission didn't deal with it at all. That's tough. That's what really raised the alarm bells to Walter Graham, is that this is a bizarre situation where the, the clip shouldn't have been there at all if the rifle was fired correctly. And there's not even a mention of it in the Warren Report, except on a list of things that didn't have any fingerprints on it. Well, that was the red flag for Walter. And so we together, and it was my job. He was the genius that came up with this. My job was to try to debunk him. And I went through all the testimony, Warren report, House Select Committee. And I put, it's all in the essay. You can see the, uh, mark, the uh, weapons experts talking about it. They came up with this story about, oh, well, you know, 
It was stuck because the edges of the little tin clip were spread out. And if, yeah, sure, yeah. If you, that's the only way you could make it s stick in the bottom of the weapon the way it was photographed when Day brought it down out of the building. Uh, you have to spread the edges out of an empty clip. Well, guess what? If you spread the edges out while it's in the gun and you're firing it, it's not going to hold the cartridges and the weapon's going to jam. So it still didn't, the, the excuse the House Select Committee came up with still didn't make any sense. Um, so do you ever speculate where the second shot came from or where the other shooter was? I like John Judge's answer to that, the late John Judge. Um, uh, his answer to where the shots came from was the Pentagon. And, you know. Well, because it just it, raise, it raises alarms for me, because if you have everyone always points to Oswald was the only one that left um, the school book depository building and everyone else kind of went back into there. And I go, I mean, you see the video of him saying he was a patsy. But I go, you wouldn't just calmly leave, and then the taxi wouldn't make sense if you give a taxi to someone if you know you're being set up. So was he just unconsciously, or was he just like not knowing that he was walking into being set up? Maybe he just thought, oh, I can go home or something, and then. Let me give you a trick for not getting overwhelmed by all this. I'm already the reason. All right, let me let me get you past that. I I'll give you a simple little thing you can do to not be overwhelmed. You can. You can remove yourself from any of this. Any now, it's fine if you want to go in and get the minute detail of all this research. And in fact, there's been some excellent research that's very convincing, and I I actually go with it about a shot that was from from the South Grassy Knoll. Um, the Grassy Knoll we usually talk about is the one to the north, right next to Elm Street. But you know, it's a symmetrical plaza, and there's an identical uh, area on the other side. And people have done excellent research on a trajectory from that South Grassy Knoll. I think that's the one that hit Connolly in the back at the shoulder blade while he was turned all the way around with his back facing the front of the car. Because, you know, when he's turned around, you know, everything's lined up. Even his knee, if he, if he had to really turn all the way around, he had to get his knee up there and his wrist He'd bring it back if he was still holding his hat or not. He'd bring it up to his chest and he's looking at Kennedy and he's struggling to see Kennedy. And everything's lined up. Back, wrist, thigh. 27 degrees down. It all lines up. I think the South Grassy Knoll shot's the one that hit Connolly. And that's, of course, they had to take that out of the film. Because, you know, that's what I said. As bad as the one, the film is now, that that would have blown the whole thing. They had to make it as good as they could and then try to explain away what's left in the film. And that's the history of what they did. You know, you're talking about jet effect and all that nonsense, uh, but that's what they did. They didn't want the film to come out. It did, and once again, best laid plans go awry, you know, but that's military contingency thinking. And they, on the fly again, came up with a, a way to explain. And it doesn't matter if it makes sense. Plausibility is not required when it comes to defending the Warren Commission. Single bullet theory, plausibility is not required. All you got to do, come up with a lie and then just keep telling it. No matter how ridiculous it is, keep telling it. 
Well, see, with the Warren Commission, the people that defend it and the people that go by the narrative of it, it's kind of accepting the fact like, well, the experts worked on it and they did that. And I go, yeah, but if you can't ask the question, did the experts all have good intentions, which I always bring up the example, the number of people on the Warren Commission that backed down. The only reason you would back down after, after being assigned to something that's investigating the death of a president, you're about to get that little mark, that little gold star on your record. Like that's going to be something where people are going to be like, oh, he also worked on the Warren Commission that investigated the assassination of JFK. That doesn't even matter how much you're getting paid to do it. If you're backing down from that, to me, that's a sign of integrity. Now, take that for, okay, that's your own kind of speculation about why maybe some of them stepped down. I mean, even though people said they just didn't agree with the way that it was going or the, the direction it was heading in, the conclusion that they were coming up with. Where I just bring up the point of, I get if you want to defend the Warren Commission by saying the experts already did it, and it's just like how that guy said. He goes, for all the researchers out there that want to look into the archives, it's all there. He said that on television. Take that. Let's set that aside. What I go to is if the witnesses, all the witnesses that saw a, a back explosion and all this type of a completely different thing from what the Zapruder film shows, I bring up the example with Clint Hill. If they were able to silence witnesses, did the reason they not silence Clint Hill is the same reason Alex Jones isn't silenced? They kind of like it just sounds like a crazy person. It doesn't really sound like real, but actually what they're saying might be valid. But nobody just once you damage someone's reputation, then it's like kind of to this point. But Clint Hill has openly talked about when he jumped on the back of the, the limousine that you could see this hole through the back of the president's skull and now that confers with all the witnesses that talked about seeing a back explosion from this one part and that goes with the harper fragment the one thing that always gets publicized when it comes to that zapruder film is jackie kennedy jumping jumping on the back of the limousine where i brought up the example i've seen that over and over and over again she does not look like she's picking up brain but if i ask people about that people go she said she was picking up brain but i've heard a couple people like Gary Hill talk about she never even said she remembered anything. She said she didn't remember picking up a brain, which I point to the Larry King um, video interview with Conley's wife, where she talked about after the everything started going down, she remembered covering her husband who was falling over into his lap bleeding. And she remembered popping her head up and turning around and seeing Jackie Kennedy jumping on the back of this limousine, which she said in the interview, I thought was weird. Why was I the only one covering up my husband? Now, if you saw my panel episode, you saw me bring up the speculation with Marilyn Monroe. That's where I inferred all of that. And I got all of that because when you watch the new Marilyn Monroe doc and they talk about Robert Kennedy and JFK, I translate to what how the government works now when they want someone removed from office. They don't go about killing them. They go about slandering their name and slandering their profile and making them come out to be this thing that possibly they might not be or an overinflated version of what that was. And I bring it up to imagine if you got rid of Marilyn Monroe just saying speculate speculate with me but if you got into this aspect of marilyn monroe killing her or doing whatever if you her apparent death if you look it up is 1961 that's before kennedy was killed so you get to everything that i've seen says 61 if you google it right now it's going to say 61 so i'm just saying that's what that's what that says that's but i'm saying imagine if well imagine if you're okay let's say 62 imagine if 
the president is now someone that you want to get rid of, you want out of office. Before the assassination attempt, imagine if you just had a more effective way of getting rid of him by showing that he was cheating on his wife with Marilyn Monroe, but you've gotten rid of Marilyn Monroe, so now you can't take that route. You're like, fuck, now we got to kill him. That's where I was trying to bring up to the point of it's like that's that that doesn't really sound that's not crazy. That's a very smart strategy without avoiding this whole assassination thing. But they already got rid of Marilyn Monroe. I am very impressed with your thought process there. That's not crazy, though. Are you joking with me? I went through this in the exact same process Uh, very recently in the last year. First of all, uh, I'm like a real far outlier on this whole thing about the uh, extramarital affairs of John Kennedy and Robert Kennedy, whatever. You need to read James DiGenio's uh, two-part essay. You can get it on Kennedys and King. It's called The Posthumous Assassination of John F. Kennedy. And he goes through the whole history of where this idea of the president having affairs came from and how it was played out and how it was boosted after Watergate because you couldn't have a situation where everyone was thinking, oh, you see, Nixon's a bad guy, and the last good president we had was Kennedy. They had to make Kennedy look as bad as Nixon now. So they dredge up all of this stuff. But it started even back uh, during his administration. But it was fringe. It was like far right wing. It was like crazy stuff, fringe stuff during his administration. It was only in 75 when they boosted it big time. They got people to write books about it and stuff. And what's in the public mind now is all those fake books. And Diogenio does a fantastic job documenting all those books. And the the only documentation, there are researchers even who refuse to give this up. Uh, They'll say, oh, Diogenio wrote it. Well, you know how Jim is. You know, he's got his bias. And, And they'll say, and then, okay. What do you got beside? What do you got to uh, to counter it with? They say, J. Edgar Hoover's files. You know, given a choice between believing J. Edgar Hoover, <laughs> you know, and James D. Eugenio, forget the actual documented proof that he shows in two long essays that take a while to read, by the way, because it's so well documented. Forget the evidence if you're just going to choose to believe one person or another, and it's J. Edgar Hoover or James D. Eugenio, guess which one I'm going to believe. But I don't deal in belief. I deal in facts. I deal in evidence. And D. Eugenio nails it in those two essays. And others, there's another um, excellent article that I send people. I send them Plushimus Assassination by D. Eugenio, and I send them this other one that just goes through the whole Marilyn Monroe Kennedy affair stuff. And it goes through, you know, where they were. They're supposed to be having an affair at this place at this time. Yet Maryland is on the other coast and Kennedy is over here. There's no way, you know, and she documents all of that. And she goes back to the same people <laughs> who, who told the lies in the same books that came out after Watergate. So it all gels, you know, it's not just the Eugenio. Other people have gone through this process and not, not inspired they don't even know Genio is uh, they're just going through the factual records of whether or not marilyn monroe and kennedy had an affair didn't happen um and yeah 
There were no extra. This is the position I've come to after researching that. No extramarital affairs. I want to um, complete a thought from earlier, how to save you from being overwhelmed. Uh, we, uh, the first half of it is, why is there so much minutia? And that's because they had to lie about everything, right? So every single aspect you go into, you're going to find the lie, and then you got to find all the minutia that overcomes the lie. Every So what's the thing here? You know it's a conspiracy, right? Mm-hmm. That you know, you start with that and you stick to it. You grab a piece of the truth and you don't let it go. Everything falls in line after that. Other pieces of truth fit. The, re- the way to get past the overwhelming part is just to know that um, that it's a conspiracy. That's all you need to know. That uh, you know, you can get into the minutia you want to in order to counter the minute lies that they had to tell about every every single aspect of this that you look at, you know who's lying. You know who the liars are. You already know who the liars are. So that's how you get past the overwhelming part. You can get into it if you want to, or you can just back away, let it go, uh, and say, well, you know, I may not have researched enough to convince myself that they're lying, but they are lying, even though and if I, if I look into it, and if you find some new piece of evidence, you look at some new aspect of this. And I heard you say that you're uh, you're looking for a focus to write, start writing on this. That's a hazard in this game. I was I never considered myself a writer, but after you've read 10, 20, 50, 100 books on this subject, you start to see connections that nobody else saw. And that's where you find your focus. That's where I found mine. When I said to Joe that I wanted to write about this, I only, I don't think I was, I, I want to, I thought I was going to do like a book about it, but honestly, I think there's probably way better people out there that have done anything that I could even come close to grasping like a, a toe sucking effort at, um, which I just go, I would probably write it down because with the amount of information that I have, there's plenty of like, if I look back at some of those episodes, it seems like I'm very sporadic in my questions and asking. And really it's because I'm at seven or eight interviews on the subject. So I'm trying to fill gaps at questions I didn't ask or questions that I need holes filled to come together for the major grand plot, which I know I'll get crap in the comments for, but it's the only way my ADHD is able to write everything down is by writing it down. So when I hear something, I write it all down just so I can soak in the information. That was the whole point of me trying to say, like, I wanted to write something. And it just, at this point now, it's just like, I've, I mean, there are some things Dale Myers says that make sense. Now, anybody that explains the magic bullet to me and just saying it out loud, I laugh at, I just, it's like saying the word Noam Chomsky. I just get chuckles. I don't know what it is. It's just, there's two things in this world that make me inaudibly laugh. And that is the magic bullet and the word Noam Chomsky. But when I'm soaking, like there's some things he makes sense about like Tibbet's death. I don't think it was Oswald that killed them, but he talked about the angle of how the bullets are placed all in this upward direction. I mean, that that's logical, whether that's evidence-based or not, but that's, that's a sound conclusion. But I just go by what Larry Hancock told me when we were talking about UAPs, he goes, it's standard government protocol, cover your ass. 
I mean, they did that, and the UAP is the easiest thing you can point and see the roots of the same exact things that's going on with JFK. Not talking about aliens, but I'm just saying, look at the government's protocol of making people sound like they're batshit insane. There are people, scientists, that were afraid to join up on, like, there's a Robertson panel, and the only reason I remember that is because it's my last name, but there are people that were on that thing. And there are people that were involved in other board panels about UAPs that killed themselves with the amount of hatred they got from their colleagues and the amount of hatred they were distorted in the public's eye. I mean, that's a great way for people to stop researching into something. It's a government tactic called cover your ass. How do we make sure that this doesn't lead back to us? We'll burn the paper trail. If that comes to doing autopsy reports for JFK, what do you mean you got rid of your autopsy notes? What do you mean you got rid of it. it had blood on it i didn't want it to be objects of mere speculation or pure morbid curiosity what that doesn't make sense you keep your notes you're a person doing a highly investigative scenario and you got rid of your notes that there's there's things about that where you start realizing it's like if you think that the whole boat's gonna sink you might as well jump ship now and getting rid of this type of stuff. So when we look back and we say there's a, all these different angles and all these false truths and all these things out there, it's the best thing when you realize that time heals wounds and time also allows people to come out with new speculations and new this. And you start realizing this is why the, so, the topic is so murky is because we're looking at it from 50 years or 60 years back now. And we're looking back at that event. But what it's been has been every year maybe couple months there's been something new added to cover up this lie and cover up this lie and cover up this lie so it's so buried now where you're trying to find the truth it's going to boil down to people like yourself who were around when that happened which makes me question you keep mentioning the word texas in the beginning you mentioned texas the people in texas thought it was lbj thought it was this is the texas people yeah i know dallas texas is on your book but is the is the idea of the assassination coming from Texas completely different from how the world probably views it? Like, do you think people have a more realistic expect or realistic kind of perspective of it because they know how it goes down there or is it maybe no? Um, not, not so much, you know, uh, I, I have a, my, uh, forward to my book that I wrote, I wrote a little essay called, uh, my small world of JFK assassination conspiracy. My small world of JFK conspiracy. And I talk about in that all the connections. Once I started studying this, I found the conspiracy all around me. It was all around me. Where I was, when I was in Mes Mesquite, Texas, in second grade, when it happened, you go through the Warren Commission testimony, you find you, they, they all had to give their names and full addresses in their testimony. Tons of people in Mesquite that were that testified to the Warren Commission talked about other people that lived in Mesquite. There were situations that were investigated by the police that were happening in Mesquite and in Garland, where I lived later after 64. I graduated from Garland High School. Beverly Oliver graduated from Garland High School. You know, the famous uh, Oliver Stone made her really famous in JFK, the Babushka lady. Um, she graduated from my high school 10 years before me. Um, there's uh, a story that I talk about in my book about a plane. David Ferry, you know, David Ferry from New Orleans, who was a friend of Oswald's and involved in the conspiracy. You know, the guy that Joe Pesci played in JFK, yeah. that guy, 
the guy who had to speed to Texas to do goose hunting, uh, who was really going to fly somebody out. He was going to fly some, some of the assassins out of there. Uh, but he gave Garrison the ridiculous story. He was going to hunt geese in Houston. Um, David Ferry filed a flight plan that the uh, House Select Committee found and needed to investigate it because um, he, uh, he and, and this is in April. There's a lot of things happening in Texas in April, and, that, and including what I call the go signal, where LBJ um, held, is at an event in Dallas in April, and he talks about uh, don't shoot Kennedy down now, figuratively speaking, supposedly. Don't shoot Kennedy down now. Wait till November to shoot him down. Well, it's not even an election year. It's a midterm year. So Kennedy's not up for election in November 63. So what's LBJ talking about? Well, right after he says that, and it's reported in the papers uh, and shown on the local TV stations, all kinds of things start happening. Um, the Marina moves in with Ruth Payne. Oswald leaves for New Orleans. And then Things happening all over the country and even internationally. Other researchers, you know, they're doing their own research, not knowing anything about these other people's research about April 63. And the date, you know, I've seen it, I've witnessed it happening. I'd go to the early conferences in Dallas and I would overhear conversations where, you know, George Michael Evica is talking to some lady and she, he says, your date is April 63. My date is April 63. So all kinds of things are happening that people are independently discovering in their own research. Happening right after LBJ makes this cryptic remark about shooting Kennedy down in November. You know, and George Michael Evigo, by the way, did in-depth research on the, the, the planning of that trip. It was planned. Uh, it, it was planned in April 63. In Texas, a group of Connolly's men, um, who I tell I tell about this in my book. I don't know if you want to get in, you know, and I don't even want to get into the details of this because it's, you know, once again, it's the minutia. You can get into the minutia if you want to, but the trip was planned in Texas. Albert Thomas appreciation dinner. The guy, the congressman, who had you know carried through all the the bills and necessary work to get the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. Good friend of Kennedy's, so they thought. Kennedy liked him, they thought they were friends. Um, they were gonna have an appreciation dinner for him in Houston. They knew this was something Kennedy couldn't refuse because he loves Albert Thomas. And sure enough, Kennedy says, sure, you know, I'm not gonna miss that. When are we, wanna, when are we gonna do it? We're gonna do it on uh, November 21st, 1963. They're doing this in April, they plan this in April. So you talk about, oh, well, you know, they they didn't even know Kennedy was going to come to Dallas until September, you know, and uh, and then Oswald gets a job in the deposit. No, no, no. They knew he was coming. You know, they quickly expanded it. George Michael Evica in his research on the trip planning shows how Connolly was given the job to, with his power as governor of Texas, arm twist and and destroy anybody gets in your way, get that trip planned, get that motorcade in front of the depository. And he spends that entire year doing whatever it takes to make that happen because they already know 
That's the kill zone. And if you have a conspiracy, you have a kill zone, and you have to plan to get your victim into that kill zone. And it happened from April of 63 on to the rest of the year. And you can show Conley manipulating this all year long. Evica did a fantastic job of doing that. Yeah, because you have to think, well, how, how would Oswald be able to shoot the president when they changed the motorcade route? You have to be up in the building already knowing that's going to happen with your rifle and set and plan. It's just there's a bunch of stuff that doesn't really make sense once you really start saying it out loud. Yeah, right. Yeah, I've heard you say that too before. Yeah, yeah. When you say it out loud, it doesn't make any sense if you don't even say it out loud. But definitely when you say it out loud. And that's how you keep from getting overwhelmed. You just grab hold a piece of the truth, and then all other true things are going to connect easily to that. And that's how you avoid, you know, the war. I like. I came up with this thing. Um, I tweeted it recently, where I said, um, "A network of rabbit holes is called a Warren, as in Warren Commission." Mm-hmm. Warren Commission created the rabbit holes because they wanted you to go down rabbit holes instead of finding the truth. But they knew they knew that all you had to do was re- reverse engineer what they were doing, and it was never it was never deeply hidden. Um, so I, it's a thinly veiled cover up. I've, I've written that it wasn't a cover up at all, uh, but that's hindsight having discovered this stuff. Yeah, but it was a thinly veiled. It doesn't take much research to find this conspiracy, uh, and they knew that. They didn't care. You know, they sent a message with this assassination. Vince Salandria and Martin Schott's false uh, mystery. They created a false mystery so that you would spend your life trying to solve what you think is a mystery, but it's not a mystery. It's a false mystery so that you can waste time trying to solve it. And we wasted 58 years with the minutiae. And when we, what we should be doing. You know, the investigation ended a long time ago. Garrison got it right. What has to happen now is the prosecution. Take it on up to 76. The House Select Committee says, oh, yeah, well, we investigated again. And guess what? Conspiracy. Guess what? Time to prosecute. Turn it over to the Justice Department. Crickets. Nothing. Nothing since 76. So, and the Congress represents us. What, what should have happened under our government, and I do believe that our government exists, but only on paper. Um, when Kennedy was shot, uh, that was the last shreds of our government. It ceased to exist after that. What replaced it is what I call an assassinocracy, because after that, uh, you, either, you, either, you either warn them that we're going to kill you, or you kill him. Robert Kennedy pursued on, knowing he, Robert Kennedy knew what had happened, uh, but he pursued it, and he knew the dangers. He knew he might get shot, and, but they couldn't stop him any other way. You, as another very uh, insightful thing that you said earlier that I came to on my own was uh, the fact, yeah, I, I told you that um, yeah, if they could have blackmailed the Kennedy brothers in order to, you know, invade Cuba or whatever, or going to Vietnam, if they could have blackmailed them to do anything like that, 
yes, they would have done it. And they had everything set up to blackmail him there. Um, but they couldn't. That's how good those two guys were. They well, refused. To be. And when they refused to be blackmailed, then that sealed their fate. They had to be killed. It's because they Robert, got, it, it, well, it's because they got money. That's the thing now is like for now, if a president wants to do something, you can lose all your money, you lose all your funding. You have no power to be able to do the things you want to do. The weird thing is like every time we say like an election fails, like how come this president sucks or this president sucks? It always comes down to two sides. I go, have has anybody ever thought about independent? Like if we live in a simulation, would you think that would just toss that up there you know someone that's able like i think that's only like trump's appeal was the aspect that he wasn't in someone's pocket and i'm not a trumper i didn't vote for biden either i didn't vote for either of them but you get into this point where it's like it's just if you have a lot of money like the kennedys did for instance they could do whatever they wanted on their own they said we're going to do it without the backing of this but now you have people that are reaching out to other institutions and other things called lobbying in some sense and that's if you don't agree with them, then they're going to pull their money out from you. And then you have no platform to stand on. Yeah, this is the direction I've, I've gone. I took a hiatus. Uh, I finished the gun that didn't smoke in like uh, uh, George Michael Evica and I were and Walter worked on it uh, to expand it and edit it and refine it. By 2002, and it went up on assassinationresearch.com. Um and uh in 2002 and after that i took some time off because i had spent the entire 90s just deep diving into this minutiae and i needed a break so um then when i came back into it um tw uh, around 20 2012 i started getting this idea of all right if i get back into this i'm not going to do the minutiae i've got a i've got all that done uh and i know what happened to uh, you know to my satisfaction at least um so i need to focus on how do we get this prosecution how do we finally stop the lies and uh, and so that's been my focus um ever since i've gotten back into this and my recent essays the last essay in my book is called the the deep political um um Man, how do you forget your last chapter? The deep political realities of the 2016 U.S. general election. Okay, that's not a short title. I get it now. I know. Yeah, it's hard to remember, but it's also in Garrison Magazine. Uh, they republished it in there with some good uh, sidebars and and other notes. Uh, and I also expanded uh, before they published the original essay in there. They let me uh, expand on it to the 2020 election. I saw connections between the deep politics of the 2016 election and what was happening in 2020. Um, and so I wrote about all that. So you talk about, you know, you, it's it's an assassinocracy, you know, and I, I use the example of, have you seen Rogue One, Star Wars, Rogue One? I, don't, I haven't seen any of the new ones. Um, well, Rogue One's my favorite of all of them. You're crazy. Except maybe the first one. The prequels because the Rogue. You know the you know the pan of the text at the beginning of the first Star Wars, yeah, and it tells the story of uh, the uh, in a galaxy long, long. Water. Yeah, the yeah. rebels, the rebels, uh, rebel spies got a hold of the information they needed to destroy the Death Star. So Rogue One is that story, and there's a guy named uh, Galen Erso who 
uh, Darth Vader forces by killing his wife and wants to kill his daughter, but they, the daughter escapes. And so he's forced to go and work on the Death Star. But, and so he's hated. The rebellion hates him and they hate his daughter eventually becomes a rebel. And when they find out that her dad is Galen or so, they hate her because he's, he's with Darth Vader. He's, he's building the Death Star. He's going to make it a reality. He's the engineer that's going to make it a reality. We can't let that happen. But what Galen Urso is really doing is he's planting that defect, that self-destruct mechanism in there. If you can get a missile in the right place in the quarter, but he has to get the information out of the Empire to the Rebellion about how to do that. And this is the story of how they did that. And so he sacrificed his entire life and reputation, staying undercover. He was hated and despised as one of the bad guys, but he's actually the best guy. That's the way the world is. Good guys are bad. Bad guys are good. That's the reality of war. And that's the reality of this, too. And and that's what I talk about in those essays is, uh, you know, we, we create these like instant impressions about this politician or that one. But if you look closely at what they're doing and you look at the bigger picture, what they're doing, that's what my essays are about in recent years. Um, well, Rich, we've been going on for almost two hours. Is there a place uh, people can um, find your links to your books, find your links to your Twitter, any other links you want to promote? Oh, you know, well, uh, basically social media. Um, I, that email that I gave you, that's the, the handle is Bartholomew's. My last name is Bartholomew's, ends with M-E-W. My social media handle, which was my cartooning brand name, Bartholomew's, V-I-E-W-S, ends with that instead of M-E-W. So Bartholomew's at everything, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, email. Uh, if you just search Bartholomew, you can also search Richard Bartholomew JFK. You have to add JFK because there's other famous Richard Bartholomews. Not usually famous, like your name, by the way. Uh, you cannot find you cannot find Robbie Robertson uh, by a search because there's a famous Robbie Robertson. Give me um, a little bit. Give me a little bit more time. I'll beat him. I'll beat him. Hugely famous. I'll get there. My my guys are are more minor in fame, and not all alive. But I call that that's that's actually there's a technical spy term for that. It's called uh, signature reduction. And uh, when Joe first uh, turned me on to who you were, the first thing I said to him was Robbie Robertson. That's a good signature reduction name. It's a that's, name that that's that the, disguises can... you that you can't find easily, and the CIA uses that. It's that's, like it's tradecraft. It's spy tradecraft. That's my buddy's conspiracy with Disney. He thinks Disney's covering up every major, uh, huge, like incriminating thing. And I go, "What do you mean?" He goes, "Remember, like 1984, George Orwell? Well, if you type in 1984, you get Wonder Woman, the new one, the second one." And then I go, "Okay, that's a coincidence." He goes, "You know, Alex Jones' documentary Endgame. Look up Endgame. You get Avengers Endgame, made by Marvel Studios, which is owned by Disney." And I go, "I go, okay, that's two. It's a little bit suspicious." He goes, "Remember how they said Walt Disney's head was frozen?" And I go, "Yeah." He goes, "Just type in Disney Frozen, and you get the movie Frozen." 
And I go, I, I think these are like coincidences. He named off like nine or 10 and, and like back to back. And I was like, damn it. Like, that's a really good conspiracy or here's fantasy. More direct, here's a more direct story about talking about the difference between myths and fantasies and reality. Uh, you know how everybody, when they think of the, the animal, a lemming, you know how lemmings, uh, 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 lemmings follow each other off the cliff. Yeah. That's like the, the urban dictionary definition of a lemming. Everybody, everybody knows that lemmings follow each other off a cliff. No, no, that doesn't happen. Lemmings get crowded in a situation and they'll push the ones on the edge off the cliff. They don't follow each other off the cliff. You know where that myth started? In a Disney nature film that was shown in schools in the 50s. So that's a that's about as that's like a uh bad that's a bad myth compared to like my mascot's myth. My mascot's the dodo bird, and people are like, Well, you have a you have a bird that's stupid as your mascot. I was like, actually, the dodo bird, if you look up the real like story behind it, they all lived on one island and there was only the dodo bird species, there was nothing else. And the English settlers, when they came over, they stopped on this island and they ate every single last dodo bird to extinction. And people will say, well, it's a stupid bird. Well, the English settlers didn't have to trap them. They just came up to the birds and the birds would just come up to them. It's because they didn't know any predators and they didn't have anything that they ate. They only ate insects and you know fruit and stuff like that. So you had a naive bird that didn't know what a danger was and it caused it to go extinct. And it's kind of like with people. You know, if you don't know what dangers are, you're going to fall into those traps and you're going to be set up and you're going to get stung. Oh, man, what a prophetic statement uh, to put at the end of this thing. For the dodo. And, uh, you know, uh, you were you were, um, you know, the comments on some of your YouTube stuff and some of them are are critical. I recognize some of the names that you don't recognize that I people I've known since 1993. And I'm telling Joe, I mean, send them to me, send me their names so I can have them to on. You that there's a minefield out there. I, I mentioned that to you. I call it the minefield within the deep inside baseball of the research community. There's a whole history that nobody knows, just those who have lived it. And you talk about we don't want to appear with certain people in certain situations. Uh, it's that history. You know, we. There are stories, you know, we've had run-ins with these people. We know these people. And uh, I recognize some names of some of the people who were hassling you. And it, and there are mines and, and you're gonna step, step on them. But, you know, unfortunately you gotta learn some of it the hard way, but the, you're, you're smart enough and you're clever enough and you're insightful enough. You're following your gut instincts. And I like to hear that. Um, so, but you, a map is helpful. And there are people that can show you the map. And uh, so, yeah, all uh, that's more insightful than what I said. But um, <laughs> uh, Rich, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. I'm going to link all your links in the description. We're going to talk off air in a second here. Um, but it's been a pleasure having you on. And thanks for listening to this episode. Out of the